All right, so <clears throat> we had to adjust the day of the harvest party, and I'm glad it worked out that way because the weather was just brutal Friday night. So uh, I'm glad that adjusted. So we moved it to this Saturday, um, and we do have a sign-up sheet. And I, listen, I know, I know you always have good intentions. Oh, I need to hit that sign-up sheet. And you always forget. So here I am to remind you. Um, so if you are coming, we'd love to, to get you uh, to, to sign up. Just we have an idea of uh, what's, what's going to be there. And we're just going to make this work its way around um, throughout, the, throughout the service. All right, so I'm going to ask if you would turn your Bibles to First Kings chapter, chapter 1. First Kings chapter 1. If you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're here. Thank you for choosing to, uh, to, to be with us this morning. Um, we are doing a series uh, through the Bible called Volume of the Book, where Jesus says the entire Bible is, a, is, is every page is a reference to Christ, somewhere, some shape, some form. He says in Psalm 40, verse 7, then said, I lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And so we've made our way to 1 Kings. And last time we talked about how King David was took over the throne. We get to 1 Kings. David is now dying off the scene like he literally dies, and his son Solomon takes over. And, he, and if you're familiar with the story, you know that Solomon starts off really, 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 really awesome. I mean, he's like one of the best kings ever. The whole world is kind of looking towards Israel, and Israel is in charge under Solomon's reign. But when you get to chapter 11, you find that that Solomon falls, and he falls hard, man. And uh, what you find is that Solomon is a beautiful picture of Christ and the Antichrist. He's a picture of Christ because um, he sits on the throne in Jerusalem over all the kingdoms, and the temple is built in Jerusalem. But he's also a type of Antichrist because the Antichrist is going to walk into the third temple that has not yet built in Jerusalem. Then I think it's going to be built, start getting built very quickly, very, very soon. That's what the book of Daniel even talks about. And so this Antichrist is going to walk into Jerusalem. He's going to cause the sacrifice to cease. He's going to declare that he is God himself and enter into false worship. Well, that's exactly what happens in 1 Kings chapter 11. Solomon kind of abandons the temple of God and he institutes false worship within the kingdom. So he's a picture of Christ. He's also a picture of the Antichrist, and man, if we had time, which we don't, um, man, you could take those first 11 chapters of 1 Kings and doctrinally lay out how the Antichrist is going to come into power and the things that he's going to do. And so if you're into, into end times, if you're into that type of stuff, and you just want to say, okay, where am I? What's going on? Read those first 11 chapters. Now, we're going to give you a bird's eye view of it today. And I mean bird's eye. We're not going to hit every verse. We're, we just got to hit some, some key points because I want to make this super practical and prepare our hearts for what God has in store for us with the, with the Lord's Supper. But if you really want to go doctrinal, grab those first 11 chapters and grab the book of Daniel, grab the book of Revelation, and compare those three passages, and it's going to lay out for you exactly the Antichrist system and how it, how it lays out. I'm just telling you, it's a great pairing to to uh, study the book of Daniel, as well as the book of Revelation. So let's go to the Lord. Let's dive in and see everything that God has for us. Father, Lord, I pray that you would speak. Oh, Lord, uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover. And uh, Lord, I, I don't want us to be rushed. But at the same time, Lord, I, I pray, Lord, at the end, this will bring us to the conclusion, Lord, that we need to do a heart check and prepare our hearts, Lord, through this message to 
to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. Lord, may you be magnified. And Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right, so if you have a study sheet, on the back of the bulletin is a study sheet. You'll find that it's pretty barren. There's not a lot there because I don't want to dictate what God shows you, right? And especially in today's message, I just got a, a kind of four points, and then I'm going to ask that you fill in just as God's showing you some different things. I think I put all the verses on there that we're going to look at, um, and uh, so just, y'all ready? I'm ready. I'm just like itching. So, y'all ready? Because... Uh, this is not one of those messages where we just work our way up. No, we're just going to start up. Is that right? All right, so the first point I have for you is that we're going to deal with some practical applications from Solomon's um, anointing. Solomon's anointing. Um, what you find is in chapter 1, Solomon gets anointed as king. And look at verses 1 to 3 here. Because his dad, King David, is old. He's dying. Um, and they got him covered with clothes because he has no heat. And so they bring in this woman named Abishag, this, this young lady, and she's kind of like hospice care is what her job is. So she comes in, and her job is to lay next to the king so that she can give her body heat to him. And can you imagine that? That's a weird job. Hey, what are you doing, lady? Um, I don't know. She goes, I got a job for you. You're going to come into the king, and you're going to lay next to the king. Excuse me? Yeah, that's your job. Your job is to come and lay next to the king because the king cannot get any heat and he needs your heat. And so verse 3, so they sought for a fair damsel throughout all the coasts of Israel and found Abishag, a Shulamite, and brought her to the king. So King David is dying and as he's laid up um, in bed, he's not able to rule and reign. And so there's kind of a void now, there's kind of a vacuum and his son Adonijah, Adonijah, this pops up, Adonijah is Absalom's brother. Remember Absalom, the guy with the big hair and riding through the oaks on his mule and it hangs up in the trees and he's hanging there and Joab comes and stabs him in the heart, you know, all those type of things. Absalom's brother, Adonijah, says, you know what, I think I'd like to be king. Verse 5, then Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? And he also was a very goodly man, and his mother bare him after Absalom. And he conferred with Joab, he conferred with Joab, the son, son of Zariah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. So he doesn't just say, I'm going to do this. He goes gets some important people. He gets Joab, the captain of the host, he gets the, the high priest um, to, to join him in this. But he doesn't invite the ones he knows that's not going to be for him. You can read that in, in verse 8. All right, so, so Nathan and Bathsheba, Nathan is the prophet, and Bathsheba, they, they come together and say, hey, uh, hey, David's dying. And uh, Adonijah looks like he's trying to take over the throne. We got to do something. I don't know that even David knows what's going on. I don't think anybody's told David what's up. And so they come up with this plan. Hey, Bathsheba, why don't you go into the king? And, and start uh, confronting him and letting him know what's going on, questioning who's really going to rule and reign. I thought it was going to be Solomon. And as you're talking, Nathan's going to come in, and he's going to do some talking, and then confirm it, and we'll, we'll just see what David does. All right, so go to verse 17, because Bathsheba now sneaks up and, and comes into the king, and, and she says in verse 17, and she said unto him, My Lord, thou swearest by the Lord thy God unto thine handmaid, saying, assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me and he shall sit upon my throne. I mean, didn't you tell me that Solomon was going to rule and reign and yet we have Adonijah, verse 18, reigning. And now my lord the king, thou knowest it not. 
and he has slain oxen and fat cattle. And he goes on, um, she goes on, and it says, And Biathar the priest, and Joab the captain of the host, but Solomon thy servant hath he not called. And thou, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are upon thee, that thou shouldest tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Would you just tell everybody who's going to rule after you? Everybody's waiting. Adonai just trying to take over. Uh, kind of a softly taking over, and then and Bathsheba's like, David, you told me that Solomon's going to reign. Well, as she's talking, Nathan comes in, and look at verse, uh, look at uh, verse twenty-four. And Nathan said, My lord, O king, hast thou said that Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? Verse twenty-seven. Is this thing done by my lord the king, and, and thou hast not showed it unto thy servant, who shall sit on the throne of the lord the, the king after him? And so you see this kingdom now vacillating. David is phasing out because his life is phasing out. Adonijah is trying to take over, and there's like this power vacuum, and everybody's trying to figure it out, and the people don't know who to follow. Do I follow David? Do I follow, do I follow Adonijah? I don't know what to do. And so they come, and they say, would you say something? All right, verse 29. Because now David declares that Solomon is going to go in a reign. Verse 29. And the king swear and said, As the Lord liveth, uh, that hath redeemed my soul out of all distress, even I, as I swear unto thee by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, thy son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my stead. Even so will I certainly do this day. And so David says, yep, for sure, Solomon is going to be the one who rules and reigns. Verse 33, the king also said unto them, take with you the servants of your Lord and cause Solomon, my son, to ride upon mine own mule and bring him down to Gihon and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him their king over Israel and blow you the trumpet and say, God save King Solomon. And so they, sure enough, they go and they do that. Verse 39, and Zadok the priest took a horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, God save King Solomon. And check this out. And all the people came up after him, and the people piped with pipes and rejoiced with a great joy, so that the earth rent with the sound of them. Oh, man, the people are excited. Solomon is the anointed is the anointed king. All right, so some applications I want to make here. I want you to notice this. Solomon does not assume or take the throne for himself. He doesn't pull an Adonijah, does he? He sits back and he waits. He waits. He, he knows that he's the, the anointed one. He knows that he's the selected one, but Solomon doesn't just take charge. Adonijah does that. No, Solomon sits back and he waits for somebody else to give him the throne. He's waited until he, he waits until he's placed in the position as king. And maybe that's where uh, you are. You're like, man, I think I could lead this better. I think I could do this better, and I could, I could do this. And so there's a temptation, I think, um, not just here, but across the board where you have individuals that say, you know, I'm going to just go do this. Be careful, because there's a difference between a went one and a sent one. Amen? There's a difference between being a went one and a sent one. Here's what I mean by that. God does not bless those who launch out and begin on their own without being put in that position. Does that make sense? Now, there's a sent one. That's where the church gets behind or the leadership gets behind. It says, okay, we're acknowledging this is what God is going to do. All right, so I think there's some great applications here. 
because what you see in the nation of Israel is this natural, this natural evidence to everyone, hey, there's going to be a changing of the guard here. King David is no longer on the scene. No one's seen or heard from him in a long time. They're sending out messengers to go find a young virgin who's going to come and lay next to the king. And Dave Shelby and I were just talking about this like last week. That's a weird story. Like dive into that. It's really weird. Um, so they go get this woman to, to lay next to the king and, and get him heat. So it's literally like hospice care. No one's heard from David. Ad and I just trying to take over. Everybody's like, Solomon's got to be the dude. Would somebody just make a decision? And King David says, we're going to do this right now. We're going to make a declaration. Solomon is going to be the next king. Now, he's not king yet. He's king-elect. Right? He's anointed the next king. But that doesn't happen until after David dies. Well, man, I can, I can make some application just within local church ministry, though. Because it's evident to the body of Christ when there's a natural change of leadership happening, whether it's from a pastor perspective or children's leaders or you name it, right? There's a natural evidence, hey, things are happening. All right, well, there needs to be a clear message sent, right? There needs to be a clear message sent. And men, what happens, verse 40, the people rejoice. Why? Because there's certainty in leadership. And so praise the Lord. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to, to, to make that clear today, man. My wife's been doing an amazing job with that. But for the last year, year and a half, God's just been stirring in your heart. I, 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 it's just not where my heart is. And Well, praise the Lord. What does that mean? Okay, well, they're phasing out. and Well, now what? Well, now we need a team. Because God hasn't raised up just a couple or an individual. Okay, God's raised up a team. Well, praise the Lord. Now, that doesn't happen just overnight. It takes time of transition. All right, so that takes us to the next point. Because practical applications from Solomon's reigning now. So he's been anointed king. The people are rejoicing, and yet David is still not dead yet. He, he dies here in this chapter, chapter 2, in verse 10. Now, verses 1 to 9, David has given um, Solomon some great wisdom. He gives him some great advice and tells who to take out and who to allow to reign and all those type of things. But look at verse, chapter 2, verse 10. And so David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, verse 12. Then set Solomon upon the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. Solomon doesn't take the anointing and just run with it. No, he waits through the time of transition. And as soon as dad's gone, Solomon takes over the throne, chapter 2, verse 27. Now, here's what Solomon has to do. He has to thrust out Abiathar from being the priest. You see that in verse 27. Because Abiathar joined with Adonijah, right? So Abiathar, the priest, joins with Adonijah, and Solomon is like, hey, Adonijah, or sorry, Abiathar, you can't be the priest anymore. you got to get out of here because you backed the wrong guy. All right, so Abiathar is kicked out of the priesthood. Verse 28 and 29, you see this guy named Joab, who's the captain of the Lord's host, well, he gets killed. So he gets killed, and you see this in verse 28. And Titan came to Joab, for Joab had, had turned after Adonijah. Though he turned not after Absalom, and Joab fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord and caught hold on the, altars, on the horns of the altar. So he runs in the tabernacle of God. He holds onto the horns of the altar. They go and tell Solomon. Solomon says, just go kill that dude. It's time for him to die. In fact, David had told him. To, to take him out. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. They fall on him 
and he dies. Look at this in verse 34. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and fell upon him and slew him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. All right. So Abiathar's gone. Joab is now dead. But look at verse 35, because now there's another leadership void. And the king puts Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in, in the room over the host. And Zadok, the priest, did the king put in the room of Abiathar. So now he's replaced them with qualified leaders. Y'all with me? So now he's on the throne. David is dead. Now he's officially on the throne. And then God comes to Solomon in chapter 3 and says, Hey, Solomon, um, I want to bless you. So whatever you ask of me, that's what I'm going to give you. And Solomon could have asked for riches. He could have asked for a long life. He could have asked for all these different things, but he doesn't. He asks for wisdom. Look at verse 7. It says, And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. And then he says, verse 9, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord. The Solomon had asked this thing. What does he ask for? He asked for wisdom. He asked for judgment. Listen, I don't know how to do this. My, my dad was a really good king, but I don't know what to do. Look at all these people. How can I rule and reign over them? I need wisdom. I need, I need judgment. In verse 11, God says, okay, I'm going to give you that. And on top of that, I'm going to give you riches and all these different things. So God, God honors that. And here's the cool thing, because right after that, you get this crazy story about two harlots. Y'all know what a harlot is. I'm not going to fill in the blank, right? I know the ears we have in the room. So two harlots, um, both of them are pregnant, both of them living together. So you have two single mamas living together of the same profession. Y'all got me. Both those children are born. One of, and they're, and so they're co-sleeping, and one, raises, and one overlays the other one at night. So smothers her son to death. She must have been a hard sleeper. Right? I don't know. So she lays over her son and kills her son, smothers him to death. The other one raises, and, and, and then she realizes what she's done, and she goes, okay. So she takes her dead, dead child, sneaks it into the, her friend's into her Fred's bed, takes the living child out of that one and puts it in her bed and pretends like everything's fine, like a mama doesn't know what her kid looks like. Right? So she plays this game. Of course, now they're fighting, and they come to the king, and and the king's like, why am I, what is going on here? We're actually having this conversation, all right? So God gives him this crazy judgment. Verse 23, chapter 3, verse 23. Then said the king, so now it's up to the king. He's got to deal with this. Whose kid, who does this kid belong to? Which mom? And he's got to make the decision. Whatever the king says, that's what's going to go. And so he's got he's to cut through the mustard as it is. Verse 23. The one saith, this is my son that liveth, and thy son is dead. And the other saith, nay, but thy son is, thy, is the dead, and my son is the living. And the king said, bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And the, and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. I thought you said he had wisdom and judgment. Yeah, he does. He has no intention of dividing the kid. Right? He's, he has no intention to, to kill the kid, but he's like, hey, chop the kid in half and give each of them half, and they'll be happy. 
Ain't nobody got a living kid now. All right, and then, and then it says this, verse 26. Then spake the woman whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son, and she said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. Right, so this one is so bitter, she doesn't even really want the kid. Right, and So, so the, the, the real mom says, no, please don't kill my son. And, and Solomon says, ah, we figured it out. Give her the living child. You see that in verse, you see that in verse 27. So Solomon's able to make right judgment. Now look at the response, verse 28, because it doesn't take long for that word to get out. It doesn't take long for that story to make it in the newspapers and the coffee shop and, and wherever. Verse 28, and all, the, and all Israel heard the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of Solomon, is that what it says? No, it's the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. What did Solomon pray for? He didn't want earthly wisdom. He wanted godly wisdom. And God gives him godly wisdom. And it's evident because the people are now rejoicing and saying, no, we don't just have the right king. We got a king with right judgment. In other words, he knows how to handle the word of God. He knows how to handle the sword. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, So King Solomon was king over all Israel. So now he's established as king, not just on a throne, but now in the eyes of the people. Because there's wisdom in the judgment. Is everybody with me on that? So now let's make some applications that I'm seeing here. So if you remember the story, he's kicked out of Biathar, and he's kicked out, and he's, he's, he's uh, gotten rid of Joab. And, and maybe this will help you out. Division is a disqualifier. Division is a disqualifier. Here's what I mean by this. You have Abiathar and you have Joab. Both of them chose to go with Adonijah. Adonijah is trying to take over the throne, and so they divide the kingdom. They cause division, and Solomon's come to the conclusion, listen, you cause division, therefore you can no longer be responsible in leadership. So division is a disqualifier for leadership. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? You see that? That's a great principle throughout the, throughout the Bible. And let me, re, let me rephrase that. So those who cause division by stepping outside a biblical structure are disqualified from leadership. Man, I need to, remind, I need to be rem, reminded of that. There must always be biblical structure. Now, here's what I mean by this. Romans chapter 16 in verse 17. I think I got it up on the screen. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division. Now, I, listen, time out. There's a lot of people who love to quote this verse, and they don't quote it correctly because they like to say, look, the ones who cause division. <laughs> Hold on, keep reading. And offenses contrary to the doctrine. You see that? The word of God is the authority. And so when somebody's walking contrary to that and causing divisions and offenses contrary to the word of God, which you have learned, it says avoid them. And so there's a disqualifier for those who cause division based on biblical structure. But if you remember, as soon as they were off the scene, he puts in two new people. Listen, voids in leadership require qualified leaders to fill them. So anytime there's a leadership void, there must be somebody to fill that void. That's why we always train leaders. Amen, church? That's why we're always training leaders. Now, when God comes to Solomon and says, hey, what do you want? You want riches? What, do you, what are you asking for? And Solomon says, you know what? I want, I want wisdom because I want to lead your people. 
So if you are in any form of shape, in any shape or form, in any kind of leadership whatsoever, and I mean that's children's ministry to discipleship to pastoring or whatever, deaconing, you name it, whatever leadership role structure you're in, let me advise you and advise myself. I spent some time on my face this morning about this. Focus on wisely leading the people. Focus there and not on the rewards or the pleasures that this, of, of world or position. So focus on that. Why? Because the reward is to serve. That's reward enough. Amen? That's reward enough. The reward is to serve the people and not benefit from them. And Solomon had every opportunity. And I think if Solomon would have asked for riches, he would have got riches. If he would have asked for a long life, he would have given them long life. But because he asked for wisdom, that's what the people needed. He asked for what the people needed, not for what he wanted himself. The heart of a true leader cares for the benefit of those who are being led. Amen? So I think there's a great principle there. But then he says, remember, he takes a sword and says, hey, let's chop this kid in half and we'll just deal with this. Well, he had no intention to chop the kid in half. He wanted to, to reveal who the true mother is. Okay, if you're going to be in leadership with wisdom, then you've got to know how to handle the word of God. You've got to know how to handle the sword because the word of God is likened to a sword. The sword is likened to the word of God, and leaders must know how to handle the sword. Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Titus chapter 1, verse 9 says, Holding fast the faithful word as he'd been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. In other words, you better know how to use your weapon. You better know how to use your sword. You're like, Tony, I don't know that I know how to use your sword. Okay, use my sword. Okay, well, plug in. We would love to disciple you. We teach you where the books of the Bible are, number one. Teach you what those books of the Bible say, number two. And teach you how to break it down, to divide it correctly, and know when to use a sword and when not to use a sword. We want to do everything we possibly can to train up leaders who are able to do that with sound doctrine, be able to wield their sword. A lot of times we get dangerous where we know a little bit of Bible and it's not too sharp and we just go to swing in it, right? And we ruin it and damage relationships. Be careful. You got to know how to use the sword and when to use it. Let the high praises of God be in your mouth and a two-edged sword in your hand. Psalm 149 verse 6. So, man, I think those are some practical applications from that. All right, so let's take a step further then. Practical applications for Solomon's building. For Solomon's building, because now he's established on the throne. People are now following him, and now he gets into the construction business. Now it's time for him to start building, and he builds some houses. He builds a lot of houses. Look with me in chapter chapter 5, last few verses of chapter 5. So Solomon builds the Lord's house. You see this in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. He begins to get all the materials that are needed. And the king commanded, and they brought great stones and costly stones and huge stones to lay the foundation of the house. And Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them, and the stone squarers, that's a hard word. I practiced that one three times. Stone squarers. I sound like squirrel. I can't say that. We were stone squarers. So they prepared timber and stones to build the house. Notice, he doesn't just get materials, but he raises up those who are able to use the materials and do something with them. 
So it's not just stuff, it's also people who are able to do stuff with the stuff. So he raises up the materials that are needed, the people who are needed in chapter 6, verse 1. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month Ziph, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. And the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was three score cubits and the breadth thereof 20 cubits and the height thereof 30 cubits. That's big, Right? Cubits, 18 inches roughly, sometimes up to 24. I mean, it's, it's a large, large building. But all I want you to get here is that he builds it in verse, 30, verse 37. Verse 37, he's got the materials, he's got the people building it. Verse 37, it finally gets finished. In the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid in the month Ziph. And in the eleventh year, in the month Bull, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof. And according to all the fashion of it, so was he seven years in building it. It took seven years to build the Lord's house. So chapters 5 and 6, seven years, gone. Just like that. They build the house of the Lord. Okay, it takes them seven years. Seven being the number of completion, the number of perfection. Then you get to chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. What's the very first word? But. That means there's something going on here. It doesn't say and. It says but. Two different words, right? So if you're telling a story and you go and, and, and you're like, I'm on the edge of my seat. Give me some more. Give me some more. And it goes, but. Oh. Things aren't going good. Because what does it say in chapter 7, verse 1? But Solomon was building his own house, how many years? 13 years. So he built his own house and, and he finished all his house. Verse 2. He built also the house of the forest of Lebanon. The length thereof was 100 cubits and the breadth thereof 50 cubits and the height thereof 30 cubits. I don't know if you paid attention to the size of the Lord's house and the size of his house. His house is bigger. Right? He builds a bigger house for himself, and he does that up in Lebanon. Interesting, because Lebanon's on the scene today. Very interesting. So he builds his own house, verse 8, who, who also built a house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he'd taken to wife, like unto his porch. Uh-oh, he builds another, and he builds a house for his wife. You mean they didn't live together? Apparently not. Apparently not. So he, he gives his wife um, his, her own house, and all the ladies are going, why won't you do that for me? Right? Why don't you build me a house? Okay, well, keep reading. Uh, keep reading. Because number 13 is a, is, is a number of what? Rebellion. The number 13 is the number of rebellion. And what happens is you begin to see there's a change in Solomon's heart. Because he was focused on what the people needed in wisdom. But he began to get lifted up with all the riches that God gave him. And began to pursue after ladies and began to pursue after riches. So he gets all the, the temple done and he begins to furnish the temple. Chapter 8 and verse 1. He brings the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. You see that in verse 1. And then he dedicates the temple. Stay in chapter 8. Look at verse 22. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keep his covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. Man, he's speaking some truth, isn't he? Thing is, I don't know that he necessarily believes it at the moment because his heart does get, get, uh, get turned. Verse 26. 
verse 26, and says, And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant, David, my father. What is he asking? David wanted to build the temple. God says, Nope, David, you can't build the temple. You have blood on your hands. Get the stuff, and, and Solomon's going to build it. So Solomon builds it, and then Solomon dedicates it to the Lord. All right, that sounds great. And then God warns, God warns Solomon in chapter 9. Go to chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. Because God steps up and says, hey, Solomon, we need to chat. Let's have, a, let's have a conversation here because I need to warn you from turning away from me. You just told me in the dedication that I am God. There is none other beside me. You know that. You just said that. Verse, verse, chapter 9, verse 6, it says, But if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other little g-gods, and worship them, then I will cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. And at this house, which is high, everyone that passeth by it shall be astonished and shall hiss, and they shall say, Why hath the Lord done this unto this land and to this house? So God warns him. God warns him and says, Don't turn on me, because if, if you turn on me, I'm turning on you. You don't want that. You do not ever want to reach a point in your life where God is against you. Amen? You don't ever want to get there. Now, so Solomon builds the, the Lord's house. Solomon built his own houses. And then he also now builds his kingdom because the kingdom reaches its fullest potential. Go to chapter 10, verse 1. Fame goes out. Word gets out that Solomon's kingdom is beyond anything anybody's ever seen. And this queen of Sheba comes up to hear the fame of Solomon. You see this in verse 1. And when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to reprove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart, and Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. So she's got, she's got a long time to travel and get all these questions lined up. What about this, and what about this, and what about this? And Solomon answers every single one of them. In fact, I think he even read it and says, he can even tell her what the questions are before she even asks them. I think that's a different way you could even read that passage. Well, isn't that interesting? Verse 6, as she said unto the king, it was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and all thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceeded the fame which I had heard. And she says, happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. What happens? Kings and royalty are now coming to see the king in his glory. That's what's happening. Kings and royalty from the world are now flowing to Jerusalem to see a king in his glory. And it's stay in chapter 10 because look at verse 23. Now the kingdom has surpassed all other kingdoms. Verse 23, so King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. All right, so there's a lot going on here, but I, I want to make some practical applications. So he builds the house, right? He builds the house, takes him seven years, but it takes 13 years to build his own house. Here's something I just, I just want us to make sure that we get. Your priority, my priority, our priority should be to build the Lord's house. 
That should be our number one priority. It should be to build the Lord's house. Now, let me remind you of something. You, as a New Testament believer, are the Lord's house. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Do you not know that? That's what Paul said to this Corinthian church. You should know this. How do you not know that? Okay, well, the question on the table is maybe you didn't know it, but now you do. If you have believed on Jesus Christ, if you've called on him as Savior, the Spirit of God now dwells inside of you, the Shekinah glory of God rests inside of you. Think about that just for a moment. The glory of God that rested in, in, the, in the most holy place in, that, in the temple, behind the veil, that same glory, that, that same glory that shined in, in the Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3 is the same glory that's inside of us. You are the temple of God. All right, so your priority then should be to build that house. This one. Now get this. I don't want you to hear, well, I guess I'll just abandon my house. No, it is possible. It is possible to build your house while prioritizing the Lord's house. It is a possibility. Don't just abandon your house. It's not wrong for Solomon to build a house. He just got it twisted. Okay? I would just say it this way. Be careful not to get out of balance. Now, I've, I've got some really crude, I'm not an artist, just so you know. I'm not an artist, so I've got three pictures I want to put up. The first one is this. This is the wrong balance, because this is what some of us are hearing. Um, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. Okay, you're more than welcome to do your own thing. Where your house is the most important thing. All your weight, all your life, all your decisions, everything you're doing is on your side, and the Lord's house is just up there vacillating, doing its own thing. That's the wrong balance. Can we all agree with that? Like, yeah, no, that's easy. Yeah, I agree. That's the wrong balance. How about the next picture? Because maybe you're thinking this is the right balance. This is wrong. Because immediately we're also thinking, well, this, then I got to be balanced. The Lord's house and my house. No, no, no. That's the wrong balance too. God is not interested in your house being of equal, equal play as the Lord's house. That's the wrong balance too. I submit to you, this is the next picture is the right balance. It's the Lord's house is everything. And your house is not. Well, you just said there's nothing wrong with that. I, would, I, I agree. But let me give you another passage. James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall what? Go back to that picture, please. That last one. This is the right balance you want for your life where the Lord's house gets every decision you make. It's first in your finances. It's first in your attention. It's first in your, in your schedule. It's first in everything. The Lord's house, where you are consuming the word of God for yourself. You're, you're engaged in worship before the Lord, and you're allowing the, the spirit of God to rule and reign from within you. You're engaged in ministry. You're, you're pouring into the lives of others. You're seeking to lead other people to Christ. That is the first and foremost thing of your life. And what happens when I make God everything? Go next to the next verse in, in James chapter 4. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift thee up. You don't have to build it yourself. You don't have to build your own house. The true balance is when he gets everything, you automatically get lifted up because you made yourself low, man. 
It's amazing. You're like, how in the world is this happening? How, is, how am I able to make the bills work? How am I able to do this? How am I able to find time? It's because you prioritize the building of the Lord's house. But when you get it flipped, when you get it flipped, man, you were on the throne and he is not. Be careful. Your priority needs to be on the Lord's house. All right, so King Solomon is doing, he's doing well. Well, how do I know when I'm doing well? How do I know when I'm thriving? I would say it was when the queens of Sheba start showing it up. In other words, when you begin to reach the world. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In the Old Testament, the world flew, went, went flooding towards the temple of God. That's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the temple, the individual temples of God go to the world. And it's our job to go to the queens of Sheba. Why? So the royalty will understand the glory of the Most High God. Well, how do I know when I'm thriving? Not only when I'm reaching the world, but when God's kingdom surpasses all other kingdoms. That's when I know. In other words, his kingdom is the priority. It says here in chapter 10, verse 23, so King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Make his kingdom first, man. And when you prioritize God's kingdom over your kingdom of thingdom, I'm telling you success. That's where true success is. Man, a thing we can learn from that. But be careful, take heed that you say, unless you fall, because that's exactly what happens to Solomon. He's so, he's, he's in a state of thriving, so much so that he can coast for a while. He begins to coast in his relationship with God, relationship with God's people, and begins to focus on himself inward instead of outward, and he begins to fall. That's the next point, but practical applications from Solomon's falling, and this is going to go quick. Chapter 11, verse 1. And King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites and Zidonians and Hittites. In other words, nations that God said, don't marry those women. Don't marry them. Do not, number one, don't multiply wives to yourself. And number two, definitely don't be marrying women from these nations. It's not a race issue, it's a faith issue. Get that? It's not a race issue, it's a faith issue. Stay in chapter 11. Verse 5, so Solomon went after Ashereth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not out fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did Solomon, check this out, holy cow. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. You want to do some Bible study? You want to do some study? Go check out those gods and see what it would look like to worship them. The Solomon, who did so well, has fallen hard, man. In verse 8, and likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. So he not just built the temple for God, now he's building temples for all these false gods and these false deities. Well, God comes and gets in his grill. In verse 11, so wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, for as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes which I commanded thee, 
I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and give it to another servant. God says, Solomon, you started off so good. And now I got to give it away because you failed miserably. Look over here in chapter, 20, chapter 11, verse 29. And it came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him in the way and had clad himself with a new garment. And they two were alone in the field. And Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and rent it in 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take thee ten pieces. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give ten tribes to the interesting correlation with the Antichrist and the ten kings that will rule and reign with him. Interesting. Verse 43, and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his Stead. All right, so Solomon does well, and then he falls, and when he falls, he falls hard, and God says, okay, now the kingdom is going to be divided. What's a disqualifier for leadership? Division. It's going to be divided. So let me give you some practical applications, and we're going to focus on the Lord's Supper. First one is this. Strange women will always be a leading cause of ministry's downfall. truth. The number one leading cause for pastors to fall, strange women. Now, strange women, let me give you a definition of this. There's a twofold definition. This is, you, you came to church for this. I'm just so you know. It's very simple. Strange women are women who aren't your spouse or shouldn't be your spouse. That's a strange woman. Y'all with me? A strange woman, men, I'm talking to you. A strange woman is a, is a lady who is not your spouse, nor should she be your spouse. That's a strange woman. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. It's a counterfeit, isn't it? So not only is a strange woman a picture, is that, but a strange woman is also a picture of false religion. And we don't have time to unpack that. You can read about that in chapter 5 and chapter 7 of Proverbs. But you might write this reference down. Revelation chapter 17. It talks about a harlot, the mother of harlots. It's false religion. And man, you, you, you want to see a ministry fall. Strange women, physical. Strange women, spiritual. False doctrine. Be careful. And he loves many of them. 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's crazy, man. I can't even imagine the turmoil within the house. All right, singles, let me just talk to you for a moment. Singles. Marry well. Amen? Marry well. Don't be stupid. That's, I mean, that's pretty cut and dry. Don't be stupid. Marry well. Well, how do you do that? If you're going to marry well, then you have to be drawing from the right well. And the right well are those who are doing the work of the ministry, man. That's the right well. Take it a step further. I mean, your love for the Lord. This is Solomon's fault. This is where he fell. Your love for the Lord should exceed your love for your spouse. 
Listen, I love this woman with all my heart. I do. And I fail her often. Just ask her. She'll tell you. I fail her often. But I'm telling you, my relationship with God should be the priority over her. It's just a fact, Jack. That's how it should be. Solomon did not prioritize a relationship with God. He prioritized how he could please his wives because his wives are nagging him. You got, a, you got a temple for your God. How about my God? How about my God? How about my God? And finally gives up. And he begins to build these tabernacles in high places for these false gods. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 and 33. But it would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried care for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but he that is married care for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. We were just talking about that last week in Mason's Fellowship. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35, And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, and that ye, that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. Well, how do I know when I've married well? How do I know when I'm choosing a right relationship is when it draws you to the Lord and not away from it. Now, you have to be drawn to each other, too. I mean, that makes sense. But your relationship should not distract you from the Lord, but it should help it. All right. So this is the moment to check your heart because Solomon doesn't do that. He does not check his heart. He continues in false worship to the point that God now has to step in. Notice it didn't just happen where he built a temple and the worship falls God. It didn't work like that. He let it play out for a little bit, waiting on Solomon to get it right, and he doesn't. And so God has to step in. That's why we observe the Lord's table. Our MO here, as we typically try to do it, every time we have a fifth Sunday in a month, which typically runs every three to four months. Why? Because we don't want to be out of fellowship with the Lord. We got to be doing business with God, don't we? And when we observe the Lord's table, it's, it's forcing our hands to examine our hearts. That's what this is for. It's to examine the heart of the individual so that we don't fall like Solomon, so that God doesn't have to step in and take you out. Because God takes this very seriously. And because God takes it seriously, I take it seriously, and we ought to take it seriously as a church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't have it up on the screen, this verse, anyway. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, For I have received the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he betrayed, which was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. So what we're getting ready to do is we're going to take the bread, and we're going to eat it. And it's reminding us of the broken body of Christ for us. It is not Jesus. Everybody with me on that? This bread does not become Jesus. The, the juice does not become the blood of Jesus. It's a picture of it. It's an illustration of it. So he takes it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. Verse 25, and after the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, 
This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So when we partake of this, we're reminded of what Jesus did for us. He died for us. He shed his blood for us. He hung on a cross for us. And that's what we're reminding ourselves of. And then he says in verse 26, for as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. We're also looking forward to a moment where Jesus Christ is coming back. We're also looking forward to the fact that he rose again and he's on his way back. So it's a look back, but it's also a look forward. But it's beyond that. The most important thing you can do today is look now. Present tense. He says in verse 27, I think I got this up on the screen. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now listen, take this very seriously. This moment here is for believers This is not for anybody who has any doubt of their salvation. If you say, I don't know for sure that I'm saved, okay, this is not for you. Please just sit back and observe, okay? This is for everyone in this room who claims to know Christ as Savior. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are saved, and the commandment is to examine yourself. You don't get an out. You don't get to just not participate. No, we're going to be a new lump today. So let's examine ourselves. Now I say it's a man, which means maturity. That implies maturity. So parents, it's between you and your children. I say this every week, every time, and I mean it. It's between you and your children and the the Lord. If your child is not to the age where they're able to, they may be saved, may have a salvation testimony, but they're not able to examine themselves, let them sit and let them watch. Okay? There's not going to be any police here keeping anybody away from partaking. This is between you and the Lord. Okay, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, verse 29 through 31. It says, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. We are instructed to examine ourselves, and then we are instructed to partake. We are not, we are warned not to partake without examining. with me. There needs to be a time of self-examination. Because if you don't, if all you're doing is popping up here just to enjoy it with everybody else, then you're missing the point. Verse 30. It says, For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many... What does the Bible say? God says, I take this so serious that if you're going to do this unexamined, then I've taken people out because he takes it that seriously. And we can learn from Solomon that he's able to do it and he's willing to do it. Verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. So what we're going to do is we're going to take some time. I'm going to ask our deacons and then uh, Dave Shelby to make their way up to a table. So Dave Shelby's got a table. Our other deacons are going to come and they're going to take a man a table. Their role is to help you get the juice and the bread Back to your seat. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a time of self-examination. This room ought to be quiet. This is a time to focus on the Lord. Deal with our hearts before the Lord. 
after you've had a time of self-examination, make your way to the table that's closest to you. Grab a cup of bread, grab a cup of juice, and make your way back to your seat, and we will eat and we will drink together, okay? Our deacons and our pastors are here to help get that wherever it may be if you need assistance or if you just need somebody to pray with. Now's the time to do that. So let's go to the Lord in time of self-examination.